Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome back to Climbing Consulting. After our summer break, I am very excited to return with episode 88. And let me tell you, we have a fantastic special guest to kick us off with. Today, I speak with Kevin Ellis, Chairman and Senior Partner at PwC UK. Now, I suspect as you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who PwC are, and I'm sure you've come across Kevin as well. But just in case you haven't, here's a short bit of background. Kevin leads PwC's 22,000-person strong UK business. He was elected chairman and senior partner of PwC UK in 2016, and then re-elected for a second term in 2020. Prior to that, he spent eight years on the board of PwC UK as the head of their advisory practice. In a career that has spanned almost 40 years, he's gone from a first-year accountant to the most senior partner in the firm. With such an extensive tenure and all of the experience, learnings, and insights that he's developed over that time, it was a pleasure to be able to sit down with him and get his perspective 
on many of the burning issues facing our industry today. In this conversation, we discuss a wide range of important topics, including how social mobility is critical to our industry's future and why Kevin has made it one of his key priorities for his second term. How Kevin was able to go from a trainee accountant to senior partner and his advice for you if you are looking to build your career in consulting. And the changing world of work and why remote working could actually be harming your career success. This was a great conversation. I personally got a ton from it, and I know you will too. Regardless of whether you work for PwC, one of their big four competitors, or a boutique challenger firm, the lessons and advice that Kevin shares in this one will help you on your journey, whether your goal is to increase your social impact, grow your firm, or grow your career. So, with the intro done, all that's left to say is please enjoy episode 88 and my conversation with Kevin Ellis. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. We've got a lot to talk about. I want to start, though, just before we dive in, to say thank you to your team downstairs. It was the best welcome I think I've ever had to an office. Doreen knew my name before I'd walked through the door, which is something I've never had happen anywhere else. That's very kind of you. I'll, um, I'll, go, I'll go and speak to him afterwards. That's brilliant. No, thank you for saying that. Actually, to be honest, I'll get more comments on our probably our welcome team than probably anyone else in the organisation. <laughs> but again, anyone that makes people feel welcome is a positive, isn't it, in the organisation? Well, I, I think it's, it's the little things. They cost nothing, but actually... They're really powerful. You know, that whole welcome from front door to the, you know, to here has been fantastic. Yeah, a friend of mine once talked about the first seven seconds gives yeah. you a culture of an organization. You know, so it's really good to hear you say that. Thank you. No, not at all. And it, it's it's so true. But we've got a lot to cover and mm-hmm. I'm sure we will come back to that. And I something I always do when I find out a bit more about my guests and and prepare for these interviews is go to their social media. A lot of my guests have, I'd say, limited or sort of they're early in their social media journey. Something that struck me with yourself is You've been on Twitter since 2016. You've got your LinkedIn. And we are going to go into all of the topics that are on your bio today. But I'd love to start with actually why. What is it that made you and and really for the firm as well invest so heavily in that? Why is having a social media presence so important to you? Yeah, I think I've been on Twitter since about 2015 and really using LinkedIn probably more recently. I think one of the things, we're average age is 31. So our people get their feed on what's going on and form their opinions from many different places. Probably when I was younger, it probably was more the printed media. So although obviously we do talk to the printed media a lot and we appear in the printed media a lot, I think you have to be cognizant of where your people and your clients are getting their feeds from. And the other thing is it's struck me many times that, you know, we'll talk about something, we'll put something out on Twitter. I'll be in the lift talking to someone. I just kind of get in the lift and someone will ask me about the comment on Twitter. So you have to own what you say. You can't just be effectively another channel of the firm. It has to be in your own voice because you'll get asked a question by you know, <laughs> people are quite confident. They will quite often ask me in the lift why we said that, what we're doing and what that means. So for me, it's another source of communication with both our people and our clients. And it particularly, I think, reflects the generational switch that has happened for that audience over the last 10 or 15 years. And if we're not part of it, then we don't have a voice. I think that point around actually your colleagues are asking you about it is is a really important one and that owning it piece as well because I think there are a lot of firms where they yeah, it's the corporate voice just with a, a face but how, how do you strike that balance you know obviously I can see a football team on your, your Twitter but how do you strike that balance between sort of making sure the corporate messages come across but also getting you know that personal message you, what you're feeling you know across to your clients and to your colleagues 
I don't use social media purely for personal, totally personal views, Mm. because I'm not sure that's what people are interested in. It has to be my opinion on business issues or societal issues that matter. So whether Spurs won or lost, that probably wouldn't be right. Um, So it isn't kind of Kevin's diary. It is my role as chairman and senior partners organization giving my view quite often on some of the more sensitive topics, the murder of George Floyd and the like, you know, that wouldn't be my view alone, right? I, I will have a view, but I will talk to our comms team. I'll talk to other members of my board. I'll talk to our multiracial society that work with us and effectively collaborate on the view because I am conscious that some of these areas are a minefield. And at the same time, you know, just going straight out with a kind of very quick opinion might not be appropriate for an organisation like ours that represents so many different parts of society who work here, whose parents are interested in their careers. So that's another thing. You know, quite often I get texts and emails from people expressing a view from their mums, dads (laughs) or spouses on something we have said on social media. So again, you've got a responsibility (laughs) to be quite thoughtful about what you say, but it must be in your voice and it must be your view. Yeah, I think the world would be a better place if a lot of people took that opinion on, on, on social media, Kevin. <laughs> I talk about myself. I <laughs> well, and I think to turn to some of those business issues, and as I say, you know, I got tons from reading through your your Twitter and you know, a lot for today's conversation. I think the first area I'd love to go into is, is social mobility. I know it's something you're hugely passionate about, and I know actually you were talking to your new work experience cohort yesterday. And I'd love to start with just why. You know, I, This is a big focus for you, for the firm, why is it so important and why are you putting so much effort behind it? Right. Firstly, there's a societal reason, isn't there? I mean, it sits alongside diversity and inclusion. It sits alongside people being able to bring their best selves to work. You know, we'll all know stories of 30 years ago where people would cover up their backgrounds so that they're fitted in. I mean, we've gone a long way from there. Yeah. And the fact that we recruit from 100 different educational establishments, the fact that we have a team that do a brilliant job effectively giving us the opportunity to access many people that probably wouldn't consider working in an office building or PwC as being something available to them. So yesterday, meeting those 200 people, 100 in person and 100 virtually across the country was really my opportunity to say our doors are open. And only by doing that am I going to get the diverse workforce and I make a difference. And you know, we've got loads of insights into that. And I think actually, you know, leveling up has become a little bit of a cliche but no one can do it on their own no organization no government no educational establishment this has to be a collaborative team game Mm. we have to play our part because we're a major employer but the other factor is it's an economic one too you know we sell to thirty thousand clients across the uk and those clients come from all kinds of backgrounds i mean you we at the moment as a country are constantly in the media celebrating the people behind some of the unicorns whether they've been pizza delivery drivers or the like. Um, those people buy from people that look and sound like them. You know, quite often the feedback I hear that we were as good as our competitors, possibly better. But why they gave us the work is they trusted us because we had similar backgrounds to those that were making that buying decision. So it's a total economic necessity as well. You know, 60% of my business is one from private business. Private business comes in entrepreneurs of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds. So therefore, you know, of the 200 people yesterday, you know, 34% were black. A huge percentage came from free school meal families. uh, And we use organization and social mobility network that we trust and work with to identify those people 
So you can't just assume because you've got a big brand and everyone knows your brand, mm-hmm. that the people you want to recruit and you want to have the doors open to uh, will have heard of your brand. So you know, the people <laughs> in the room yesterday probably had no one in their families or social group that ever worked in an office. So, you know, yesterday was education. And the questions they asked me were fascinating. I mean, they were, you know, quite challenging in terms of the profession, their, what they'd read about accountancy, what they'd read about auditing. Were there any that stick out? Do you remember? No, I, I just thought it was really interesting that they were treating the opportunity, not just an opportunity to come in and get a new laptop, they have got a laptop, but to spend a week. But they actually wanted to ask me questions about, if they worked here, would it be the right thing for them because of what they read about auditing? Which again, shows you the challenge we've got as a business because mm-hmm. if you are going to be open to all parts of society, people have got to be proud to work here. That's kind of part of, kind of part of the deal, really. Yeah, and I want to come back to the economic benefit, but what you said around, I guess, making PwC, the industry at large, more accessible really struck me. And actually, how do you do that? Because you mentioned your, your sort of partners. How do you help these people who are now on your work experience program find out that there's even a work experience opportunity at PwC? We do a lot of work in schools. We have a lot of big outreach programs for schools. You know, again, because we've got a very young workforce and we give all our people, say, six days volunteering a year because that's what they, they want, that's what works for us. You know, We have people from, if you like, disadvantaged or backgrounds where they probably wouldn't have heard of PwC who are now here becoming, if you like, the bridge to more from their background. So I think that in the past, whereas I said you know, 30 years ago, people might have covered that up. People are really proud of that. You know, we've been voted as the number one social mobility employer for the last two years in the UK. You'd be amazed at people talking about that first ahead of revenue, ahead of profit. That's what people are proud of. Mm. At the end of the day, we're only as strong as our people. We won a job the other day and the feedback was absolutely that, was that you got it because you look like us and your team shared our values. So that kind of tells you you're getting it right. And it's not just that the, the new joiners, we've been doing it for years and years and years. We're probably now speaking about it more because we need to open the doors wider. And that economic point, you know, you, you made the point there, you, you're winning business because of this. And that makes it feel like it, it's a no-brainer. I'm sure it wasn't always that easy to persuade everyone that this is an initiative that you should be pursuing. Whether it's within PwC or sort of the industry at large, I'd love to understand any challenge you've had on you know, why should we be focusing on this and actually how you've helped overcome that so that you can make it a focus for the you know for the firm and to your point for society as a whole. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, we're a partnership, mm-hmm. right? So I'm voted in by my partners, and I any decisions we make as a board has to be in their best interest. So if I decided to give so much money to a charity. I would have to be able to justify it. It couldn't just be a personal whim or the board's personal whim. And therefore, quite often, you've kind of got to have that narrative behind it. Mm-hmm. Also, by having the narrative behind it, people become proud of it. And you get not just me as an advocate, you get 22,000 advocates. So again, putting the business reason alongside the societal reason increases the number of advocates mm-hmm. and widens effectively the number of people sharing the narrative. And that must be a good thing. And actually, I hear you know constantly other CEOs ask me about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and they're fascinated too. Uh, you know, just as one example, you know, we opened an office in Bradford. We did it as a, a kind of experiment, if I'm honest with you. Uh, and what we found was that people from Bradford weren't travelling to Leeds, which is a huge office, to work for us. And um, the more you looked into it, you realised that 
people from poorer backgrounds have got less cash and less confidence to travel outside their postcodes to look for work. So by having an office in Bradford, we not only managed to recruit 80 people at the start, but those 80 people had better CVs than our average, which kind of told you you're accessing a part of society that will be fantastic employees that probably weren't getting the opportunity. That office has now got over 250 people in it. That has carried on. It's probably got the biggest cohort of free school meal joiners, but it's still getting fantastic CVs. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to other CEOs who also got offices in more challenging areas, they say the same. What we're also seeing, though, and people in Bradford move on faster because once they get a foothold, they're on an escalator, a social mobility escalator, and they mm-hmm. effectively increase their aspirational and their confidence and they move on. So I think, again, that insight has been very valuable to us as a firm in terms of our experience in Belfast, which we just opened an office there. It's over 3,000 people. And again, so I think you can, at the end of the day, we're in a war for talent. You mm-hmm. know, this business is growing fast. It's got huge opportunities. The whole profession is growing fast. Rather than trying to effectively steal people off our competitors, it's much better, I think, to create more talent, particularly ones from a more challenged background. Because from there, we'll be able to reach more clients, be more successful economically. Yeah. Well, and I guess the sort of to your point around Bradford being somewhere that people wouldn't travel from, you're, you're tapping into talent that was previously unavailable because of you know the, the issues that you highlighted. So actually picking these locations is helping you win talent. You're not simply trying to poach people in London from someone else. Yeah. And I think also it becomes kind of a petri dish of understanding mm. of what makes a difference. And again, I think if we as a business can share that understanding with other businesses, that will increase the number of opportunities for more people. At the same time, by collaborating with educations, the educationists, we can also give them our insights too. Quite a lot of the uh, universities we work with are fascinated by that insight because, again, they want to tap into it and they haven't got the opportunity that we have because as a big employer, we can do things like open office and Bradford. We can do things like follow the data and put together the data story to give us the insights to share with others. So it's not just self-serving, it is an opportunity to share the insights as to how others can make a difference and help as well. And something you you touched on around the um, number one for social mobility two years in a row, and I listened to the podcast you did with the social mobility podcast, and something you said there struck me to those points around, actually, this isn't celebrated. Talk of the society at large, we don't celebrate social mobility. You know, we very often see articles about this CEO earns far too much and the sort of negative side of the social equation. But we don't celebrate those who have come from you know, sort of disadvantaged or challenged backgrounds. I'd love to just get your take on that and actually what we can be doing more, both your colleagues but others in society, to, to shout about this and give those role models because I think it was such an important point you made. I think it's things like this, Nick. I mean, I think, you know, the fact that you picked it up on social media, the fact we're having this podcast and talking about it, the fact we're doing another podcast, yeah, you know, I think it's really important. And again, I think, going back to my conversations the lift with some of our employees, they are incredibly proud of it. Their families know the stories. So I think 30 years ago, it, there was a stigma. If you came from a more challenged background, it was something not to talk mm. about. That's moved on. Now we're at the kind of, if you like, the, the pendulum swinging the other way, and people will talk about it more. But I think it's not about, you know, we've got a foundation, we make charitable contributions and the like. I think it's more about how you use the business pathway and jobs pathway and work experience pathway to make a difference. You know, I saw a statistic once. I can't remember its source, but basically, if your child before the age of 18 had six days' work experience, it changed their aspiration by about 80%. I can honestly say from the people I've met in the office on those work experience journeys, I've seen that. 
they move from looking at their feet and feeling embarrassed to joking, laughing and chatting to others and asking challenging questions as I had yesterday. <laughs> oh, it's such a it's such a powerful point, Kevin. And yeah, I, I think back to when I first heard of professional services and it was university, you know, sponsored the rugby, the football, the hockey team. And actually, you know, prior to that at school, I think careers, the career service said, you, know, you can go and work at the council office, which there's nothing wrong with, but that was kind of the you know, the top career in the area. And I think having that work experience is really powerful. I mean, you, I'm intrigued. You mentioned that sort of six days that you've you know, everyone in the the team gets. So, is you, are your more junior colleagues encouraged to you know, go back to their school, do talks, and is it that I guess network effect that makes people aware of this? Is it more proactive? How does that? How do you strike that balance? Yeah, I, I think as I say. We haven't got a set of rules as to what it should be. Everyone's got mm. those six days. They can do it. It's kind of paid for. It's part of the, the deal. And I think a lot of people, if you came, so a lot of people will identify with what matters to them and their families and their social groups. If that's education, if that's opportunity, if that's social mobility, I'm sure that they'll go back to their schools. Mm. Other people will have uh, family members with illnesses or charities that matter to them in different ways. So it isn't up to us to tell them to do it. Of course. One thing we do do is we do this thing called One uh, Day in May where we encourage the whole firm to do something together for charities. And that is a, that's really about kind of widening again the opportunities that those that haven't got a natural charity they want to work with to mm. go with other colleagues to do something. And so, again, I think you just, keep, you just have to keep reminding people it's there because that's how you make the biggest difference. That's how you kind of touch more people's lives. Yeah. And... You mentioned the sort of 30 years and how the industry's changed. It's, it's funny because when I started working in London, I didn't sound like this. It was only uh, <laughs> when I, I, I realized how everyone else sounded that I started sounding like this. But I'd love to sort of, I guess, get your take on how that's happened. It might just be, you know, a natural change in society. But actually, how has or what proactive steps are you taking to, to support that diversity, both sort of at the junior level, but as it climbs the firm, it may not be it may not be a challenge at all now. But I suspect for some, you know, climbing from their first role upwards, there's a lot of social pressures, social challenges. How do you build that into the hierarchy so that those opportunities persist throughout the grade structure? Yeah, again, it's it's wider than just social mobility. It's diversity and inclusion. Mm. People bring the best themselves to work, whether it's about sexual orientation, color of skin. Or gender. So a lot of these things, we actually find that it's all about flow rates. You know, you, you kind of, you can beat yourself up that you haven't got enough black people that are partners or females that are partners. But if you like, if you haven't got the talent to select from mm. in the pools before you get to that point in time, then you won't be a fair meritocracy. Yeah. So if you like, our big insight on that was about sharing out the opportunities so that the diverse talent had the same CVs when you're making the selection of partners or senior managers or managers. So monitoring that flow rates of promotion right the way through the organization meant you have more talent to pick from in the senior grades. And that that kind of effectively answered the challenge that it's positive discrimination. Yeah, mm. because at the end they meritocracy, at the end they were a business. We've got to have the top talent in the right jobs or we won't be successful. We won't be able to do any of the good things we want to do. We won't be successful. You know, so you kind of got to get that right. We're very proud of the fact that, you know, the number of people that came through to partner this year, you know, the gender diversity was significantly higher. The number of people, partners, female, I think, has moved up from about 18% now to near 24%. Yeah, so it's moving up. But again, with 900 partners, mm. it's going to take a time. And now we're doing the same with black people in the organization, monitoring that through the organization at the flow rates. Hard to do for social mobility because it's harder. And, and to do any of these things, 
people have got to be willing to share the information. So gender is obviously it was slightly easier. When, uh, when we first started asking people their ethnic origins, you know, probably we got about 60% take up. It's now well into the 90s because, again, you've got to build trust in your people to get them to answer those questions. And only then by getting that, if you like, that level of transparency, can you make the difference? But again, for me, it's flow rates. It's about sharing the data. The other thing we did, which is really important, is when we put out our annual report, we put out our pay gap, not just the pay gap on gender, but on ethnic minority and on black employees. And we share that publicly. And the reason for doing that is to hold ourselves account, accountable, both to our clients, our stakeholders and our people, that we are doing what we said we'd do. That's quite important. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when we last did it, the only person I think who commented on it wasn't people in the government, actually, it was Francis O'Grady, the uh, General Secretary of the TUC, very positively, the fact we were doing it. But again, I thought it was quite interesting that it gets quite a lot of interest from wider parts of society that probably wouldn't normally take an interest in us. So that helps with the narrative as well. Yeah, no, completely. I think that point on flow rate is really, really key. I mean, as you say, to be a meritocracy, you've got to pick from the best and to get increased diversity across all different sort of groups. It's increasing that at the bottom so they can rise to the top. And, and therefore, it will take time in some yeah. cases because you know, we're a big organisation. People take years to come to partner. So it's going to take time. And that's why you've got to actually not only do the flow rates, you've got to publish it externally to hold yourself accountable to the journey you're on. Otherwise, the danger is everyone says, oh, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? You know, it'll take us years. We'll be back to you in 10 years. That isn't acceptable. No, completely. And I, I want to turn a little bit, Kevin, to some of your advice to help those people on that journey. Because obviously, we're sitting here, chairman, second term. And I'd love to find out, I guess, starting with sort of, I don't think you expected to be here when you first started at PwC. And I'd love to actually go all the way back to that origin, why you joined. And I think I read on your website bio, you thought you'd be here for a few years and then get a proper job. So we're here 30, 37 years later, sort of, why'd you join and, and what made you stay? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I, actually I was telling the story yesterday to the school children. I think, and yeah, history pays tricks on you, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I think the reason I decided to do accountancy was to get the qualifications and the reason for that probably was about the age of 15 I was around a friend's house and her dad was at home in the garden and where I grew up in Chingford you didn't often see dads around in the day I mean the world mm. changed everything else but and I remember asking her why he was there and he just lost his job and I probably hadn't this is the 70s I probably hadn't come across many people that had lost their jobs mm. you, know, you read about it in the paper hadn't you knew many people and I remember going home and asking my Dad, would he, could he lose his job? And he said, yeah, I could lose a job because people do lose jobs. But he said, I, I'm an accountant. I got to be, I went to left school at 13, but I went to even class. I got to be an accountant purely so that if I lost my job, I'd have a certificate that helped me get another one. And that stayed with me. So I think when I was leaving university, that was probably one of the reasons I joined here. So often I do say, you know, I came here to get that certificate and then go and get a proper job with that certificate. <laughs> uh, and the reason I stayed was the people and the learning. I mean, we're a learning-based organization. There was always something new to learn. And probably the other reason I stayed was I was lucky enough to go on a couple of secondments. So I kind of got the opportunity to kind of leave the mothership, be outside the organization looking in. And that kind of taught me two things. One, the grass wasn't quite as green as it felt like, because it always does, doesn't it? Yeah. And then secondly, I think I got a different perspective on how people saw the firm. I only knew the firm from the inside. So seeing the firm from the outside and effectively the respect with which it was held. And then the final part of that jigsaw really was that in the other organizations, there's no disrespect to them. It wasn't so focused on learning. It was mm. more focused on who got the job when that job went. 
rather than kind of people moving up together. So a lot of the learnings we got here, I felt at that age, we got from our peers. That didn't seem to happen to other organizations the same way. So I kind of thought as long as I was still learning, I'd carry on staying here. And 37 years later, I'm still learning. <laughs> no, I, I think that point around the grass is always green is really powerful as well. Because, And I know from my own career, it's, it's often easy to look over the fence and see the best of it and actually doing some time in other firms to... That was, that was key for me. You know, and, and mates tell you in the pub how wonderful it is when they leave because they will justify it, won't they? So you're under a lot of pressure at that kind of post-qualification mm. time when people are earning... They get an uptick in their income. They're an exciting place with a big name and they're doing different things. And you think, oh, that sounds really interesting. I think if I hadn't done those comments, I probably would have put my toe in the water somewhere else. I might come back, but I certainly would have done. <laughs> no, completely. It's uh, and sort of jumping a bit ahead in your journey because obviously you made partner, which for many people is a, is a goal. That's the sort of, you know, they see that as the, the pinnacle and what they're aiming for. And I'd love to understand what was it for you when you got there that made you think, you know, actually, I want to, I want to keep going, developing my career, and and I guess progressing in the organisation. You know, because there's quite a step from entry level sort of first partner to yourself. What was it that made you decide to, you know, actually continue on that journey? I never had a career plan. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit cynical about career plans because they're not all that way. So I, I think I I kind of lived by the experience that I was getting year to year, or maybe two or three years. And I think as long as I was moving around doing different things, I was lucky enough. I I when I was a partner, I was in what's called insolvency business recovery services. And you got a lot of different experiences there and you crossed over into a lot of different industries. So you, you were always learning. Also, I think the big factor for me, and I said it at the start, is one of the reasons you stay is the people. And I was mentored by some outstanding people who took an interest in me. And I think that is a huge part of the kind of contract of our firm with our mm. people that people taking an interest in you at key moments in your career, people kind of sharing in your success, if you like, makes a massive difference. So I always, you know, when people tell me, you know, we're losing staff because we're not paying them enough and, you know, we've got to make sure we are paying people, we've got to be the right reward. And that would always be a factor. I think a bigger factor for organisations like ours is feeling like you belong. That's a diversity inclusion point but feeling like you've got equal opportunity and people are taking an interest in you and sharing your success. Mm -hmm. So I think it kind of our ability to train, develop and hold on to the top talent is actually in our hands. And that's what it was for me. That's why I stayed. That point just struck me around that learning and development. How do you do that as a firm now? How do you keep those opportunities going, like you say, to, to give people that mentorship and advice? Because it is it's something... Yeah, if I think of all of my guests, they always talk about mentorship, learning as keys to success. How do you, as a firm now, make sure that that's integral? Because I imagine, actually, when you've got a workforce as large as yours, it's very easy for it to get forgotten. Yeah, I mean, you can do the formal. Yeah, I'm doing mm. a video later on welcoming people to one of our formal training sessions on leadership. So, you know, there will be lots of formal training, and we're good at that because, you know, kind of part of our DNA. But I think it's the informal moments. It's the moments when you come out of a meeting and the person you've been working with says to you, how do you think the meeting went? How do you think you came across? And I can remember being literally on an escalator coming out of a meeting in Bishopsgate when the guy I was with working with said exactly that to me and then said, do you realise that although you were saying what you said you were going to say, your body language was saying something completely different because you were nervous. And all anyone was in the room was reading your body language, not hearing what you said. So it's mm -hmm. not about what you say. 
and this is a negotiation, it's how you say it. Now, if he told me the same thing in a written formal staff appraisal nine months later, I'd have thought he got confused with someone else. That wasn't me. I was brilliant. <laughs> but um, So I think, it, 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 I think it's basically reminding people that we've all got huge knowledge to impart, but imparting it in the moment to the people you're with is of massive value. Not only does that give me a key insight and a learning that I took with me kind of forever, actually, I always remember the story, but it reminded me to help others in the same way, that it's in the moment that makes a difference, not a written appraisal. Written appraisals are great and they're really <laughs> important. They're part of the process, I have to say that. But, um, <laughs> but I think it is, it, you want the whole organization from the most junior person mm. to be sharing their insights. That will make us best organization. Mm. I want to come back to that because I, I saw your the article or interview with you in the Daily Mail around working from home versus the office. And I do want to come on to that for exactly that reason. But just what you said around, you know, you're not a fan of career plans. And for you, it's just learn and see where it goes. I'd love to, I guess, dig into that a bit. And obviously, at each sort of progression in your career, there were changes, challenges, new things you had to tackle. Actually, were there any things that you did proactively do, either at a specific stage or you've done throughout your career to help you climb as you've done? I think it's take advice, going back to that mentoring mm. point. I think also you kind of know what you're not good at. I mean, you know, we're all so if you're self-aware enough to know what you're not good at, you know what you kind of got to work on. I wasn't a brilliant public speaker. I probably at that point in my career it became more important, so I probably progressed into kind of more experienced years as a partner. I kind of assumed those that were good at it had some kind of divine right, they got it at birth. Do you know what I mean? You kind of, because that was easier than thinking you've got to work at it. But then after a while, I realized that you did have to work at it. It does matter. And then I basically had someone that helped me and I made sure that I rehearsed more than everybody else, I practiced more than everybody else. And I used external advisors to where I could to practice on probably less important events. So rather than waiting for the big event where you had to be really good and practicing like mad for that, I kind of effectively honed my skills earlier. But mm. I think you know everyone have different things they're weak at. You mm. can kind of explain it away or justify it away, or you can try and get better at it. It's like playing football and not having a left foot. I still haven't got a left foot, but <laughs> I've got mean? neither. So, but, but you know, but if you keep, if you keep, if you just assume you'll be better with your right foot and you can make up mm. for it, that probably isn't enough. Hmm. So I think, I think it is. And, and the brilliant thing about this organization is that there is always someone here mm. that can help you. There is always someone that's better than you. And we are very free in giving advice and help to others. That's mm. just part of the culture here. So I think, firstly, though, it's up to you as an individual, in, the case, in this case, me as an individual, to accept what I wasn't good at and work at it. No, I really like that. And I, I think the point on practice when the stakes are low is probably yeah. Uh, yeah. Quite, quite a powerful message. And I'd be interested, again, to your journey, but equally to advice you give to others in the firm. There's always a balance, isn't there, between play to your strengths, fix your weaknesses, and actually how much time do you spend getting your, your left foot versus scoring with your right? And I'd love to just, I guess, get your take on that. You know, actually, because I'm sure people, when they speak to you in the lift, they're like, Kevin, you're good at everything. You know, <laughs> for you, has it mainly been fixing some of those areas where you're weaker, or has it been equally playing to some of those strengths and really being self-aware enough to know what those are as well i think it's a bit of both really there's no there's no formula i think everyone's different but i think if you are aware of your weaknesses and help yourself develop them you become even more comfortable in your own skin and that makes you braver so i think that's all you can do i mean yeah the other thing in this organization and probably other organizations is that there's certain things you'll never get very good at it 
I mean, you know, I'm not a very good completer finisher. I haven't got fantastic concentration, to be really honest. <laughs> and therefore, you can work really hard at it, but it's not quite the same as public speaking. I don't mm. think the wiring's there for me. Now, mm. maybe that's wrong. Someone listens and knows more about me. So there is. So therefore, I make sure I surround myself in choosing my board and choosing mm. the team that support me. I have people that fill in those gaps for me because mm. no one is going to be brilliant at everything. Yeah. So at the end of the day, to make sure the finished article or what we do is as good as it can be, there are certain parts that I'm never going to be as good at mm-hmm. as others, and therefore I need that quality alongside me. So I, I regularly say when people have just become partner or just got a major promotion, the two things that they need to do is before they look, kind of look up for the next promotion, which is a temptation I know, um, <laughs> is firstly send the escalator down for the next generation because this is all about talent. And mm-hmm. if you bring more talent through, you'll be even more successful as an individual. And then secondly... Choose the people around you with the knowledge of what gaps you need to fill. Don't choose your mates. There's no point in choosing your mates. Again, and it plays to diversity and inclusion, but also it plays to effectively having a more rounded business. Yeah. I, I love the send the escalator down, by the way. And I, I think you know, to the sports metaphors are about all I can manage, but any team sport needs people in different positions and you may be strongest up front, but you need a goalkeeper somewhere else, don't you? And I really like the, yeah, don't just look up because that can sometimes be the... It's tempting as well. you just got promoted. The first thing is, well, how long get promoted again? But actually, you'll get promoted again by having more talent around you mm. and effectively backfilling you mm. so that you can then move forward. And that's quite hard to get your head around at the start. Yeah. It's not about being the cleverest person in the room. It's about using the room. I love that as well. And I, I, that's something you mentioned a moment ago about your sort of mentors and people who, who helped you on the journey. I'd just love to find out, looking back at those 37 years, who is it who stuck out to you? Who is it that you you look up to maybe now or want to emulate? And what is it about them that you know you do admire and are skills you're you're trying to learn or have tried to learn along your journey? Yeah, it wasn't just one individual. I didn't kind of model myself on one individual. Mm. I, I was lucky enough to, you know, I was in a very entrepreneurial part of the firm in insolvency. So, you know, both my predecessor as senior partner Ian Powell, Tony Lomas, who led on Enron and on Lehman's, mm. and Panka Ghosh who was in charge of London office when I brought me through to partner. All those individuals in different ways supported me, gave me confidence and gave me insight. Uh, so it's never about I want to be, I want to look like him, her or them. It was more about who gave you the confidence, the insight and effectively kind of the advice and support when you didn't get something right. One of the questions I got yesterday from one of the individuals in the room, you know, is about making mistakes. And I said, we learn more from those things we get wrong than those things we get right. As long as we take the time to understand why and how we correct them. And that is part of that mentoring process. You know, none of us are the finished article. I'm not today. I need people around me to, to help me be better at everything I'm doing because none of us are the finished article. No, it's, it's a really good point. And I always remember back to my own performance reviews of if I'm just getting good feedback, I felt I should be a partner. Now I've learned, now I'm 32, that that's not quite true. But I think it is those mistakes and those, you, know, you only yeah. learn by failing, making mistakes and, and correcting them, which is usually yeah, the key. Absolutely. Not something I always get. Both right. as an individual and an organization. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And to the organizational point, and, and you touched on earlier around that mentorship and, you know, those sort of side escalator chats when you're coming out of a meeting. I'd, I'd love to turn to the your take on on where we're going you call it the fourth industrial revolution but particularly maybe we start there around that return to the office because i know you've recently introduced the deal which is your approach to flexible working equally i know you're 
very clear and, and vocal in the fact that actually that you know, working from home five days a week isn't good for anyone. And I'll be honest, having tried it myself, it's a viewer share. But I'd love to, for my listeners, get your your perspective on that. Why are you encouraging people to come into the office at least some of the time? What are those benefits people potentially miss out on if they don't? Yeah, look, um, some of the things we talked about earlier, Nick. A lot of what we learn, we learn through observation. We learn by watching someone really good do it. And you can't really do that in a virtual world. Then there's a lot of bit about mental resilience. You know, this is a tough world. There's a lot of change going on, a lot of disruption going on. Mm. I find that when people are at home, they misinterpret things sometimes, texts or emails. And if you're paranoid or less mentally resilient, mm. that has consequences. But then probably the big thing, it's about we all benefit as well by building networks. Mm. And that's not kind of old school tire networks. That's kind of, you know, people in different industries, people with different knowledge, different insights, potential clients as well. Much easier to get those relationships and networks through having it, that relationship shared with you by someone else. Much harder to have that sharing in a virtual world. You might be able to make the contact in the virtual world, but that opportunity to be in a room and be introduced to somebody by somebody else. I suppose where again, I'm particularly, if you like, concerned and why I've been so outspoken about it is two things. Firstly, it's very easy to form behaviours and patterns. So a lot of people that work from home for a long while, five days a week, mm-hmm. who've been very productive and we've been successful through the second half of the last financial year. So they have been productive, will not know what they're missing out on because they haven't been in an office. So, you know, again, a lot of our staff joined in the last few years and they started work virtually. And so although they're probably doing the job, are they learning and developing in the way that in five years' time they might feel they missed out? Mm. So I think our job as leaders is to warn them that if you don't come in the office five days a week, you might not achieve your career aspirations. You might not learn as fast as others. Mm. So it's not about presenteeism, Mm. but it is about learning. So I think that's a key factor. Another key factor is, you know, the only long-term competitive advantage of any organization is its culture. If I had 22,000 people working from home forever, I would lose something in the culture of this organization. That kind of opportunistic innovation, that kind of innovation through serendipity. Yeah. You know, uh, so you can have lots of hourly calls, but those five minutes walking past someone, you know, me walking into the office like you did this morning, Nick, and meeting Francis or the team on the front desk, mm. you, know, you don't get all of that. You don't get, and then that that also plays to energy. You know, I get energy. We get energy from each other, from yeah. people. That kind of like bird song of the office of people chatting about, you know, kind of the weekend, the weather, a lot of that at the moment. Um, <laughs> but you know, all of those kind of things. You don't get that working from home. So mm. I think the combination of energy, observation, learning, and development, and networking, and then if you like mental resilience, uh, mental well-being, I think the office has got a major part to play in all of that. I, mean, I, I completely agree with you, Kevin. I think, and I just speak for myself, the the mental toll it takes just sitting in your home office. You know, I'm lucky enough to have a home office. Many I know have been working on kitchen tables and, and ironing boards, but just doing that five days a week really, really does sort of start to eat at you. I think particularly in the winter when it's yeah. dark. Yeah. But I love that you're, you know, for a lot of people, there is a, I guess, a negative aspect of its presenteeism, like you say. But I, I, I love the, almost it's a deal people choose to make. You're focusing on, you know, the positive, which is, you can work from home, but your career may not move as fast. And to your point, you mentioned sort of five days. Do you see it going back or some people going back to that? Do you see it as a you know a hybrid and a balance? Where do you think we'll level out on that? I think it's too early to judge. I don't think anyone's got a crystal ball. I think for me, 
we thought it was important to put guardrails in place. If we said you're totally flexible, again, going to people that don't know any differently, form their behaviours, that didn't seem fair. So that's why we were kind of, we, we did loads of surveys. We asked our people what they wanted and kind of the sweet spot was that two to three days a week in the office or at client site. But I think then by putting, if you like, the deal around that, mm. we were giving people the guide rails of what we thought was the right thing, both for us as an organization, but also for them and their careers. And so we did that deliberately. I think we're at that kind of point on the journey that we need to monitor that over the next year or so. Uh, because we've carried on opening offices during the pandemic. We opened an office in Belfast. I was in Belfast two weeks ago at that new office, which is a big office. We opened one in Watford. I was there a few months ago. You know, if people don't come out of the office, and the two, then you might have to look at your real estate structure, mightn't you? But mm-hmm. my considered opinion today is, you know, I was on the train this morning coming in. It was a lot fuller than it was two months ago. Yeah. So I think it might take a year or so, but I think you'll see people back in the office more than people predicted. Mm. A bit like the bounce back in GDP. You know, we it went right down and it did come up. I, 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 there is a kind of crowd sense around some of these things. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I guess there becomes a critical mass where you don't want to be the only one, you know, it's the fear of missing out, isn't it? You don't want to be the only one not in the office if everyone else is. And I agree. I, I come into London probably monthly and it's slowly or it's mm. getting significantly busy. I think back to last August, it was sort of like one of those zombie films, you know, border off and no one around. <laughs> yeah, I think also, and we're seeing in some of the more cultural places like theatres open up again. Mm. People don't just come into London for work. They come mm. in to meet friends and colleagues after work. So I think as London reopens and the cultural centre that makes London an amazing city it is, and other cities in the UK and around the world reopen, I think that will also pull people back in. It mm. becomes a magnet. Yeah, no, completely. And picking up that thread of the the fourth industrial revolution, which again, I know, I know something you sort of spoken a lot about. What else do you see coming, either driven by that or accelerated by the pandemic? Are there any other aspects that you think are, or you are focusing on, sort of looking at how they're going to change? So, yeah, for, just to give us a start for ten training and skills. You know, we've talked a lot about school children and school leavers. Actually. Are you finding some of the training you're having to do for those entering the world of work are changing either because of what they're being taught or because of client demands? And where do you see that going? Yeah, um, it's interesting. So we're only a barometer. We're like a barometer of what's Mm. going on out there because obviously we earn money and are successful by what our clients ask us to do. So we're quite a good barometer on that. And I think it's really interesting that, if you like, the first six months of the pandemic, if you like, the kind of march through to the last autumn, it was really tough. Mm. You know, revenue went down every month. People, the order book was getting lighter. It was really tough. And if you read the newspapers at the time, there was massive uncertainty and fear out there that mm. we've never, we've never experienced in our lifetime. And that was really important to us as an organization to make a decision as to what we wanted to do. So we took the view we were fortunate enough because of our balance sheet and confidence in our business that we could tell everyone their jobs were safe. We could tell everyone that we've made a job offer to that we were going to honour that job offer on time. 3,000 people had a job job offer. Yes, you can join us on time virtually. It'd be strange your laptop will come on a bike to your house, but (laughs) but you'll still start work. Because we didn't think it was fair to put people's lives on hold. And I think by saying jobs were safe, there wouldn't be any unnecessary redundancies. People were really, really worried about, you know, paying the mortgage, you know, how they could get another job and so on. What was really interesting is that by about September, the autumn last year, it swung. First of all, the first phase was the deals led recovery. This was a health pandemic, not a financial crisis. So in other, if you like, financial crises or crises we've all lived through, there hasn't been a lot of cash about. There was a wall of money 
searching for a home. And that led to a, a deals boom. And that's been going on ever since. We're seeing deals activity at huge levels. That's causing transformation because people that buy companies transform them. But it's also caused a huge amount of deals work. And that feeds through to all our lines of service. Then on top of that, going back to the fourth industrial revolution, as you mentioned, Nick, you've got anyone that hasn't digitized were less relevant and found it harder to work remotely. So therefore, that meant that digitization and investment in technology took place on steroids. And again, if you're us and you advise on that, that's another kind of wave of work and a wave of disruption. And the third area is transformation. And that comes in many forms. But firstly, people had supply chains, be it in parts or tangible assets, or in terms of data and back office that were priced and set up based on just in time and lowest cost. And parts of the world shut down in this pandemic. That caused real problems. And then in addition, you had governments intervening in terms of the transfer of assets, be it the vaccine wars and the like. So that's caused people to think through their supply chains. That's before you even get on to ESG. And ESG, you know, the code red moment of the report yesterday tells you that virtually every boardroom will now be thinking very carefully about their plans if they weren't already. That's going to be another wave of work support transformation. So those three waves that really started from about last autumn are driving a huge amount of activity in my industry for all the professional services and I think for all businesses actually. No, completely. And I, I think we'll see how fast we, we do come out of that, out of sort of the pandemic slowdown. And, and I guess you know, just to probably the last one on that, and I'd be fascinated to you know, the point you just mentioned, this is a boom for professional services and you know, the service lines almost reinforce each other. What, what do you see as the long term for you know, the professional services model for firms like yourselves? I've, I've had previous guests on here have said sort of everything from it's, it's going to carry on to actually it's going to disappear in 10, 20 years and, and you know, the big firms will be replaced with small ones. What's your take? Where do you see the industry going over the next 10, 20 years? I, I see it's hard to guess 10, 20 years, but you know, we've been around for over 175 years as a business and professional services are a massive training ground for this country. You know, we've got 65,000 active alumni that have kind of passed through our hands and that's just us. So you know, we're 22,000 people and we have 4,000 join us every year. You know, one of the biggest challenges is about skills. We're a major provider of skills. Go, even you know, ignoring social mobility, we're a major provider of skills. There is a massive reskilling challenge, mm. whether it's in ESG, whether it is in digitization, technology, robotics. You know, therefore, our role in that skills transformation from mm. say, the old world to the new world is critical. So I think the success of countries like ours and the support they get from the professions is critical. So I, I can't see that changing. I, I can see a boom time certainly for the near future because I think that change and challenge for corporates is going to need the support that we provide. Probably the biggest thing that's happened to us is that the need to be multidisciplinary, the need to have that crossover of skills is probably now more relevant than ever. Very few clients are asking for tax advice. They're asking for business advice that requires the insights from both a consultant, a tax advisor, i.e. how does that impact mm. your tax payments if you do it that way in that transformation, as well as advice on the cash flow and then their deals advice. So you know the idea that someone's going to come in a kind of effectively a corridor of advice rather than multidisciplinary advice, I think is probably the biggest change I've seen. And again, you know, we have the debate around audit all the time. You know, in a fast changing 
world and a more complex world, then the need for auditors to have that business and specialist support is ever more important. That's obviously at a firm level, but to our conversation around sort of individuals and and their careers, does that then start to change how people approach their learning? Sort of the, I know we've all heard of the T-shaped consultant, sort of how how thick is the top of the T getting and how short is the, the sort of bottom of that T getting? Yeah, I think, look, one of the reasons we attract people is we are a broad church in terms of what they can choose. So someone like me, going back to my story, you know, I didn't come here to be a senior partner. I didn't come here to be, even be anything other than a qualified accountant. And then the opportunities arise after that. That's probably the same for a lot of people at the age of 18 or 21, whenever they're mm. joining us. So I think by being a broad church, you can attract more people and people can choose where they go. Mm. I think that multidisciplinary point I make now, we're seeing now partners. You know, we're moving partners from, if you like, between specialisms mm. because the world collides in different ways. You know, a telecoms company is um, a sports media company. You know, mm. companies change shape. And therefore, they want from their advisors a broader understanding, both as a business and individuals. So a number of our partners move lines of service and move skill set quite regularly, mm. partly because they want more opportunity, more excitement, just to change. And it's better doing that than leaving us because we want to hold on to the talented. But also partly that that's what our clients need. Our clients need that diversity of thought mm. and insight. Now, it's, and it, I, to your point around the learning and... I guess what's what's kept you here and what your clients value is that changing roles, trying new things, learning things. And I guess very last question on this before we move into to our wrap-up question that I ask all oh. my guests. It's, it's only because today is A-Level Results Day. I'd just love to get your take. You know, We'll be putting this out sort of slightly later in the autumn, but what is your, you know, if you could give one piece of advice to those A-Level leavers, sort of taking everything we've talked about today, what's that one thing you'd be saying to them? It's a long life. You know, I think at the moment, when we're all getting results, that's the most important moment in time then. I think we'll all, all look back now, that probably wasn't the absolute <laughs> crossroad of our lives, but it feels like it today. So it's not quite a Jeremy Clarkson advice, which he regularly quotes every every, every time the A-levels that he didn't get any and therefore didn't affect his career. <laughs> but it is, it is about the, I don't think any one moment in your life determines the rest of your life. And I think, you know, it's about constantly learning constantly seeking opportunities, constantly seeking advice, not just about one set of certificates. I love that. And it brings us nicely into the final question. I ask these to all my guests and David, who kindly introduced us, may have mentioned them to you. I don't know if you've listened to our interviews, you may have heard his answers, but I'd love to get your take. And the first one is on books. And I'm a big reader. It's worth saying, I know not everyone is. So actually, if you prefer podcast articles, please say, but I'd love to sort of get your thoughts on over the last 37 years what's the the book or books that have really impacted you what do you find yourself either going back to or giving to your colleagues most often the book i yeah probably go back to the most is the two books written by a very close friend of mine who sadly no longer with us gareth jones which is why should anyone be led by you and why should anyone work here and i think they go to the heart of both authenticity but also culture and they're probably the books i i probably go to that point you make there nick I refer to more people than any other book. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, authentic leadership uh, inspires trust and trust is at the heart of everything we do. And I think Gareth kind of nailed it in both those books. Fantastic. But I always read different books. And I just finished a book by uh, 
Matthew Syed on Rebel Ideas, which is really interesting. The more zany one was Wim Hof's book about kind of... Oh, the breathing. Yeah, have, you, so, have you tried it? I've tried it. Have you I've, tried the free, I've, tried, I've tried the freezing showers. And <laughs> certainly if you swim in this sea in the UK, it's pretty cold. But um, yeah, no, but I just think, I think it's always interesting to get kind of different ideas from, if you like, the more kind of mainstream culture ones from Gareth back to Wim Hof and some of the more slightly zany. I think it's probably most polite way no, I've um, I've heard Wim Hof on a number of podcasts. I've I've tried the cold showers. I, I don't last that long. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm right at thirty seconds. <laughs> I must say, I think the for me the costs greatly outweigh the benefits. I'm told you become a new man once you've done it. Allegedly, allegedly, that's uh, to be seen. But Gareth's books, I've actually got a holiday coming up myself, so Brilliant. they are okay. fantastic. I will definitely look those two up. And our last question, and, and you touched on it a little with the advice for A level leavers, but this is going to be for those who have started their their career and. It's really you've it. It could be a wrap up. It could be you know some key points we've not touched on. But you've got three people in front of you, colleagues here from PwC. One is a first year analyst graduate, just just entered. One is I say manager, but sort of mid twenties. They've been here long enough to have options, but you know they they haven't necessarily found their niche yet. And the last one is someone approaching partner. And I, I'd love to just get your one piece of advice for each of those three people. I think it'd be the same advice, actually. I think you, whatever you're doing, whatever grade, whatever you are in your career, you must always keep learning and seeking new experiences and keep building your networks. You know, quite often I think there's this kind of, from the outside, people think that people make partner and then they build their networks. Most of the strongest business relationships I've had, I've had for years. So I would say to all of them, you know, wherever you senior you are, you must learn, you're learning all the time about yourself as well as about other things, but also making sure you're constantly building your networks. Brilliant. Well, I think great advice to end us on, Kevin. So thank you very much for today. We alluded to it earlier, but if people want to find you, find out more about yourself, hear some of your thoughts, where would you point them to? Where can they they hear more from you? Social media, Twitter, on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. And yes, thank you very much. Really good conversation and all the best for the rest of your week. Cheers, Nick. Thanks very much. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.